Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings 8, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 11. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, we thank you for the week of Thanksgiving, a reminder to be filled with thanksgiving, to be filled with joy, gratitude for who you are and all that you've done. And Father, as we talk about the dedication of the temple, the celebration of the ark going into the temple, and the recognition that the ark represents your willingness to be present among humanity, we're filled with gratitude, thankfulness, because of your grace. Guard our time, guide it, allow it to be honoring to you. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to go to the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. It is actually run by Rabbi Richman. It's not a place that you take toward groups. In fact, most evangelicals probably have never gone to the Temple Institute. It is run by 20 Talmudic scholars. Scholars who look at the 4th century Talmud, 4th century AD, which is a large compendium talking about Jewish law and Jewish tradition. What they're doing at the Temple Institute is they're preparing someday for a third temple. We have the first temple under Solomon, built in 930 to 970 AD, or 970-930. We have the second, built by Ezra and Zerubbabel and Haggai around 530. And that was destroyed in AD 70. We haven't had a temple in Jerusalem since AD 70. They're desiring to build yet another temple. And because of that, they are creating the vestments, the outfits worn by the priests, especially the high priest. They're creating some of the furniture, the articles. Here's a picture of the menorah. The menorah is outside of the temple area below the western or wailing wall. That is made of solid gold. It is 3,000 pounds. That will be in the new temple. They're making the great basin to wash ceremonially. They're creating a new ark. Now, as you know, the ark or the ark of the covenant is the most sacred piece of furniture in the old temple and in the new. It is four and a half feet by two and a half feet by two and a half feet. It is made of acacia wood overlaid with pure gold. On top is the caparay, that is the mercy seat. And then you have the two angels, the cherubim, and it is carried by poles, and it represents the throne of God. It represents the presence of God among humanity. You ever doubt the love of God? Think of the ark. God came down. The infinite creator, the glorious God, came down for us and dwelt among us and loves us. That's what the ark represents. Now we might ask the question, where is the ark today? 
With apologies to Indiana Jones, he did not find it. In fact, the ark was only in the first temple, and it was lost before the second temple. We haven't had an ark since the first temple, although the Temple Institute has recreated a mini ark. So where is the ark? Well, if you go to Ethiopia today, they'll tell you that it is in Aksum. It is at the Church of Our Lady. It is the Lady Mary inside that church. They claim the ark is there. They claim that Solomon had a relationship with the Queen of Sheba. And they had a son, Menelik I, who became a ruler of Ethiopia. And he went back to meet his father. And as a gift, Solomon gave him the ark and he brought it to Ethiopia. It's a great story. It's historically dubious. The ark is not likely in Ethiopia. There's an extra biblical book. It's part of the Apocrypha. It's 2 Maccabees chapter 2. It tells us that prior to the invasion of Babylon in 605 and 586 B.C., Jeremiah hid the ark on a mountain referring to Mount Nebo. He hid the ark in some tunnels so that Babylon could not capture it. I think that is highly likely. Another apocryphal book, First Ezra, tells us that the Babylonians found the place where Jeremiah hid the ark and they took the ark back to Babylon and it was destroyed or lost. There is a long tradition. It's a tradition called Tosefta by Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Eliezer that believes that the ark is destroyed. And yet, and yet the Temple Institute today, and perhaps the most famous Jewish rabbi other than Jesus, Rabbi Yehuda, and many Hasidic scholars even today insist that the ark was not destroyed. Rabbi Yehuda tells us that the ark is underneath the 37-acre Temple Mount. That it was hidden in the rabbinic tunnels. Some of which we can access, many of which is forbidden to access. And in one of those forbidden tunnels, there the ark lies. We know those tunnels exist and we know we can't go at them. As I mentioned a few weeks ago when I talked about the temple, there is a law. Israel controls the safety of the Temple Mount, and it's an Israeli law. And the WAIF, the Islamic religious organization, controls the top of the Temple Mount, and they agree with the law that no one can dig on top of the Temple Mount or underneath the Temple Mount. And so nobody can find some of the treasures that are in the Temple Mount, that 37 acres, the most disputed, most valuable acreage anywhere on the face of the earth. When individuals break that rule, like in 1993 and 96, when the WAIF expanded the Al-Aqsa Mosque on top of the temple from 5,000 to 10,000 seats, riots ensued. 
Occasionally, some rabbis have gone under in the rabbinic tunnels that we're allowed to access, and they've tried to tunnel to other tunnels that nobody is allowed to access, and riots have ensued. Although not a dig, the disputed nature of those 37 acres was front and center in the year 2000, where opposition leader Ariel Sharon went up as a Jew on the Temple Mount, which is not acceptable by Jews. There's a sign by the head Jerusalem rabbi that says a Jew cannot go on the Temple Mount because it's defiled, and it's not allowed by the waif, the Islamic society. But Ariel Sharon went up on the Temple Mount and declared that the Palestinians don't control the Temple Mount but the Jews do, and you remember the result. It was the second intifada. It was such a mass rioting that 1,000 Jews and 2,000 Palestinians died in the riot. Nobody touches the dirt on top of the Temple Mount or underneath the Temple Mount. And if the ark is there, it is highly unlikely that we will be able to find it or access it any time soon. But that ark, that ark created 3,500 years ago, during the time of Moses, that ark represents the love of God for humanity. It represents that the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, the infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing God, came and dwelt among us, cares for us, loves us, is concerned for you, for me, that's what the ark represents. And in the celebration of that first temple, it was the ark that representing the presence of God that was the high point of the celebration. God dwelling among men. Let me read from 1 Kings 8, 1 to 11. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, that is Jerusalem, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, better known as the month of Tishri, around September, the most holy month, in the Jewish calendar. It's the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark. And they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting. And all the holy vessels that were in the tent, the priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark. So the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. 
And they are there to this day. That is the time of the writing of 1 Kings. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt and when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. I want us to picture the scene of 1 Kings 8 which is paralleled in 2 Chronicles 5. This is the celebration. We've had the the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, 500 years. They would set it up and take it down. They were a nomadic people. Set it up and take it down. Move to another location. Set it up and take it down. And after 500 years of wear and tear, the tabernacle was in disrepute. It was in ruins. And so God allowed Solomon to build the temple. And it took seven years. Actually, it took six years and one month. Then Solomon waits 11 months till he gets to the holiest month of the year, the month of Tishri, to open up the doors of the temple to celebrate God's temple, God's dwelling, God coming down, God caring and loving us. Now think about the month of Tishri. It starts with Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. Ten days of fasting and feasting. Ten days of confession and repentance. Asking God for forgiveness, for cleansing, to wash us, to redeem us. And then Rosh Hashanah flows into Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, 25 hours. The most sacred day of the year, the only day of a required fast. All of Israel is to fast on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. More about that in a moment. And then seven more days of Sukkot. That's the Feast of Tabernacles reminding the Jews of God's provision during the 40 years of wandering prior to entering the Promised Land. To this day, if you're there during Sukkot, up on top of the flat roofs, people set up little tents constructed often of cloth and sticks, and they camp out reminding themselves of God's provision, God's love, God's care. And messianically of the coming of Jesus Christ. Now think about Rosh Hashanah. The new year. Ten days of fasting and feasting. And confession and repentance. And compare that to how we celebrate the new year. We look for a crystal ball to drop. We kiss whoever is around us. It's a drunken revelry. And they have ten days of preparing their heart. Flowing into Yom Kippur, the holiest day. Flowing in to Sukkot, the provision of God and the Messiah coming. So we have these days, 18 days of preparing our hearts. Followed by seven more days to celebrate 
the opening of the temple. How did anyone get anything done? 25 days in one month dedicated to worshiping God. That's what our God is like. That's what our God is worthy of. That kind of worship, that kind of celebration, that kind of thanksgiving. 25 days. Second Chronicles 5 tells us a lot about what that worship was like. It was a magnificent celebration. If it had been just a normal day, they would have had 1,200 to 1,300 Levites. Those are worship pastors on call for two weeks at a time to lead in celebration, to lead in worship. Second Chronicles 5 tells us that oftentimes there were 120 trumpeters simultaneously leading in worship. There were five different percussion instruments, drums and cymbals. There were wood instruments and there were brass instruments. There were the lyre and the harp, which were actually banjo-type, foot-stomping, hand-clapping-type festive instruments. Very Jewish music-sounding instruments. Our God loves variety in worship, and He's worthy of that kind of worship. And the entire nation comes together for 25 days out of the month of September. And they worship God because he is worthy. And as part of that worship, the ark representing God's presence among humanity, God's love for humanity, was brought from Jerusalem to the Temple Mount and into the holy place reminding us that God is present among us, that God loves us, that God cares for us, that God is worthy of worship, that we are the object of his rapt attention, and in return, he ought to be the object of our rapt attention. Now the ark, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and the celebration of the opening of the temple, they're all intertwined, they're all wrapped together. Think about Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year. Leviticus 16 tells us about it. Here we have the high priest in virgin vestments. He goes to the great basin and he, he ceremonially washes himself. He puts on all new vestments. Actually, verse 4 even talks about the underclothing to my understanding, the only reference of underclothing, but that's the detail that is necessary in the presence of a great God. And then in the presence of all of Israel, two goats are brought to the high priest. One will be the sacrificial goat. One will be the scapegoat. They are unblemished. The sacrificial goat will be slaughtered. His blood will be captured and taken the one time a year that anyone could go into the holy place where the ark is. And the blood is spread on top of the kippurat, the mercy seat, because what's inside of the ark? The law of God. The very law that you and I break. And when God looks down at his perfect law, he sees the mercy seat, and then he sees the blood, a temporary atonement, a temporary sacrifice, a temporary payment of our sin. And he offers grace. 
He offers forgiveness. He offers relationship. And then the second goat. He's brought to the edge of the wilderness. The high priest ceremonially places his hand on the goat. All of the sin of humanity is cast onto the goat. And then the goat is banished, alienated, sent out alone. And Jesus represents both goats. Those were temporary, annual sacrifices. Jesus became the final permanent sacrifice. Like the first goat, he was sacrificed. Like the first goat, his blood was shed on the cross. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so Jesus sacrificed himself. God became man, the perfect God-man, laid down his life, shed his blood as the remission of sin. That if by faith, we would accept Christ as our personal Savior and ask him to redeem us, to forgive us, to cleanse us, we would be given eternal life. We would be in relationship with the perfect God. But Jesus is also the scapegoat. The sin of humanity is placed on Christ and he pays the penalty of sin, which is death. And he's banished. And he's alienated. And he's alone. And so on the cross, the perfect fellowship between God the Father and God the Son for the only time in history is broken. And he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And Jesus is alienated, abandoned, and alone. That's the love of Christ. That's what the ark represents. The law of God which is broken. There's mercy. And rather than two annual sacrifices of goats, there's the permanent sacrifice of Christ. For without the shed blood, there is no remission of sin. And without the alienation, the penalty of sin is not full. And Jesus paid it all. In the 4th century, the Talmud was written, 4th century A.D. It's a Jewish compendium explaining laws and traditions of Judaism. It's not inspired, it's not inerrant, it's not without error, it's written by humans, and yet so much of the Talmud tells us how we will understand rightly some of what we read in Scripture. And in Tractate Yama, 39b, we read this. That on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that second goat, the scapegoat, they take a tassel of red and they tie it to him. And they bring the goat to the edge of the wilderness. And just before they banish him, they take the tassel, the, the scarlet red, off. And they put it on the altar. And somehow, mysteriously, throughout the year, that red tassel every year turns white. I think that's exactly the tradition that Isaiah is referring to 
In Isaiah 1.18, though your sin be as scarlet, it be made white as snow. Though it be in crimson, it be made like wool. He's talking about the tassel that represents the sin of humanity and the atonement, the blood that was red because of our sin that is made white as snow throughout the year that hangs on the altar to remind humanity of the the presence of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God extended to us. Let me read out of Tractate Yoma 39 verse B. There's a statement there that is stunning. Listen to it. The rabbis taught that 40 years prior to the destruction of the temple, the lot did not come upon the high priest's right hand. Listen to this. Nor did the tongue of scarlet wool become white. Forty years before the destruction of the temple. The temple was destroyed when? eighty seventy. Seventy minus 40 puts me when? 30 A.D. What monumental event took place? In 30 A.D., Jesus. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus paid the penalty of our sin. Jesus fulfilled Yom Kippur. Jesus permanently cleansed us. What no longer needed to happen after A.D. 30. And according to the rabbis, Jews, for the next 40 years... That tassel did not go from red to white as it had for centuries prior. Why? Because we were already cleansed through the shed blood of Christ. No need to fill, fulfill Yom Kippur. No need for two goats to be sacrificed. No need for temporary sacrifices ever to be made again because Jesus did it all. Jesus fulfilled it all. And though our sin be as scarlet, it be made white as snow. Though it be as crimson, it be made wool. Through faith in Christ, there no longer needs to be an annual sacrifice. Jesus did it all. And that's what the ark represents. It represents the presence of God coming down to man because God loves humanity. He dwells among us. And when he looks at the ark, and he sees the law of God that we break. He looks at the caparet, the mercy seat. He sees the shed blood, not of two goats, but of Jesus Christ. And when we, by faith, ask Christ to come into our heart to forgive us of our sin, we are cleansed. Mercy is extended. Grace is extended. We become children of the King. And we have a future inheritance in heaven. A future not made with hands that cannot be taken, that cannot be broken, that has been bought with the price, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So two final thoughts. First, Jesus did it all. There is no need for temple sacrifices. Good thing we haven't had a temple since A.D. 70. And although we know that a third temple will be built, Ezekiel 40 to 48, 2 Thessalonians 2, the temple will symbolically represent the presence of God with man. 
Because Jesus paid it all. Don't leave today without placing your faith in Christ. Believing in Christ as personal Savior and accepting the final sacrifice of Christ, His death as a payment of our sin, an atonement of our sin, His resurrection is victory over death. And by believing and receiving Christ, we are granted eternal life. Finally, the two goats of Yom Kippur are needed no more. Maybe you're here today and you are a Christ follower. You accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. But there's still the burden of guilt in your life for past sin. But if you and I have accepted Christ and we've asked for forgiveness of that past sin and empowered by God's Spirit, we've repented of that past sin. The goats have been banished. The cleansing is now complete. The bondage of sin has been broken. One is now free. Maybe there's immorality in the past of some of us. We've confessed, we've repented, but the burden of guilt is still weighing us down. The goats have been banished. The cleansing is now complete. The bondage of sin has been broken. We have been set free. Maybe there's the burden of an abortion or a stealing or maybe a, a divorce that we caused that we can no longer do anything about. It's not reconcilable. And the guilt is weighing us down. The goats have been banished. The cleansing is now complete. The bondage of sin is broken. We have been set free. Or maybe it's a besetting sin. Maybe something like pornography or lust or slander or gossip. And we've truly confessed, we've agreed with God it's sin. And empowered by God's Spirit, we're, we're turning from it. And we're moving further and further away. But it just is holding on. But, but we truly are confessing and we're truly working at it. The goats have been banished. The cleansing is in the process of being complete. The bondage of sin is broken. And we are in the process of being set free. That's what the ark represents. When the ark is brought in, when the celebration of the nation, because of the temple completion and the ark being brought in the Holy of Holies, it told the nation that the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the great I am, the Alpha and the Omega, has come down to dwell among us. And when he looks at the law that we break, he sees the caparat. He sees the mercy seat. And he sees the permanent blood of Christ. And if we, by faith, have believed in Christ, the goats, they've been banished. 
The cleansing is now complete. We have been set free. That's what the ark represents. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that rather than just a piece of acacia wood overlaid with pure gold, we now have the Christological fulfillment of the ark, the incarnation, your son, fully God, taking on full humanity, dwelling among us, and offering himself as a permanent sacrifice on the cross, a blood sacrifice, and being the scapegoat, alienated, alone, banished, took on the righteous wrath for our sin and paid the penalty. And then on the third day rose again as evidence of life after the grave, that if by faith we would receive your Son as Savior, the bondage of sin would be broken. We would be called children of the King. We would have a future and inheritance in heaven. Thank you. Thank you. It's in the name of your Son we pray. Amen.